We Christians love to call Jesus by a variety of names, different ways of describing who he is and what he means to us. Sometimes we even name our churches after them. Beautiful Savior, King of Glory, Prince of Peace, Good Shepherd, Redeemer. So how about Plunderer? Ever been to Holy Plunderer Lutheran Church? Me neither. But I do think there's an opportunity there for some new congregation just getting started. A name like that might get people's attention, spark their curiosity, make them wonder what in the world this group is up to, and it would certainly be very biblical. We are back in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and oh, are we ever in Mark. For the past couple of months, we have been reading from the Gospel of John in worship. We've dropped in on all these beautiful, intimate scenes where Jesus is speaking with his disciples, where he's promised his ongoing care for his sheep and invited his friends to abide in his love and gently breathe the Spirit into their lives. All these lovely, reassuring sorts of texts. And then this morning, Mark just comes roaring in with a different sort of Jesus altogether. A Jesus whom the authorities have decided is possessed by a demon. A Jesus who snubs his family with a nasty public rebuke. A Jesus who speaks hard words about an unforgivable sin. And yes, a Jesus who compares himself to a thief plundering a house after tying up the owner. There is no doubt about it. We are not in the Gospel of John anymore. I don't want to dwell on it this morning, but there is a good reminder here that each of the Gospels has its own way of presenting who Jesus is. Of course, there's lots of overlap, but it's always important to pay attention to each author's distinctive way of telling the story. And for Mark, this Gospel that we will be spending most of our time with over the summer and all the way up until Advent, the story of Jesus is an urgent one about God confronting exclusion and oppression in every form, proclaiming and enacting a new kingdom that will oppose these demonic forces at every turn. Jesus' first public act in this gospel, the very first thing he did after gathering a few disciples, wasn't teaching or healing or turning water into wine. It was tangling with a demon. Conflict and struggle characterize Jesus' ministry from the very beginning here. So maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised to find Jesus at the center of a heated conflict in our reading this morning, though it is only the third chapter. How has Jesus managed to stir up this much controversy this quickly? What's going on here? Mark tells us that Jesus has gone home. He's been on the move lately, exercising demons and healing sick people and arguing with religious leaders, and he's presumably intending to take a break of some kind. But there's no rest to be found because three different groups press in on Jesus here. Three separate groups are part of this scene. And I think one way into this explosive story is to try to envision it from each of those vantage points to see how the action looks from each of these three very different perspectives. We start with Jesus' family. 
Imagine for a moment that your brother Jesus, who had spent the first decades of his life with you in small town Nazareth, decided to go one day and see what this John the Baptist guy was all about. There was lots of chatter around about this wild preacher who was calling everyone to change their ways and prepare for God's intervention in the world. And Jesus decided to go and see for himself. You expected him to go and listen to John and then come back home, of course, to return to his old life and his old obligations. But he didn't come back. You waited and you waited and you hoped for news from somebody about what he was up to. Weeks went by and then finally one day you learned that he'd stepped out of the river, dripping wet, and headed off into the desert all by himself. He spent weeks alone out there and ever since that time he has been different. He's had a fire in his eye you never saw before. He's been speaking in synagogues and public squares. He's been gathering crowds. He's been telling people to follow him, Lord only knows where. Most troubling of all, he's been getting into fights with the religious leadership. Big, public, heated fights. He'd always been a quiet boy before, but now he's attracting enormous attention. And frankly, you are worried about him and the trouble he might get himself into. He seems a bit off, not right, beside himself. Maybe he just needs some rest, some quiet time back home in the village, some home-cooked soup. You see the crowds that have followed him back home now, and the religious authorities who are here to see what's going on, and you say the only thing you can think of that you think might help keep him safe. He's not right, in his mind, everyone. We're his family, we know him best, and we can take care of this. Please, everyone, go home. Leave him alone. So that's one vantage on the scene. Family members who are concerned for Jesus' well-being and probably also for his safety. The scribes present another view. They are part of the religious leadership, of course, but not just any part. These aren't the local rabbis or Pharisees from down the road. These are the scribes from Jerusalem, which means they are bigwigs. They are the officials from the central office in Geneva making a visit out into the field. They've heard the stories, and they're now here to see for themselves what's really going on out in the boonies in Galilee. So try to imagine yourself in their sandals for a moment. And what do you see? You see a small, normally quiet village with a great crowd clustered around a single house. It quickly becomes clear that many in the crowd are not from this village at all. Their dress is different. Their accents are different. You are not actually sure if they are all even from your religion. They're a strange-looking group, and they are all clearly enamored with this peasant from Nazareth, this uneducated wild man who's been disrupting worship services and disrespecting local religious leaders and disregarding the Sabbath. They're hanging on his every word, pressing in on the house where he's staying, taking his bizarre teachings as gospel. It's got very real power. There's no doubt about that. But from your perspective, how can it be divine? How could divine power pull together such a group around this untrained, brazenly confrontational leader. 
How could divine power challenge so much of the tradition as you understand it? There's only one explanation for what's going on here. This man's power comes not from God, but from the devil. That's another perspective on the scene. The theological watchdogs alarmed by the rapid growth and unwieldy power of this movement. There's one more besides. And of course, that's the crowds themselves. That's a neat and tidy term, crowds. But think for a moment about the messy realities of the people who were likely there that day. The sorts of people who were likely to leave their own places behind and go trailing after Jesus. People whom the doctors couldn't heal. People with demons that wouldn't leave them alone. People who, try as they might, could never seem to make ends meet. People who were burdened by guilt or by past actions. People whose families were fed up and through with them. Imagine yourself in that crowd of misfits, of people who didn't seem to belong anywhere. Imagine finally encountering someone who said you did belong, who said your dignity is unshakable, your life is of infinite value, your past actions are no barrier to the mercy of God. Imagine looking around at all these others from different places, different backgrounds, and looking up at this teacher who insisted you all belong to God and to one another. Wouldn't you leave your old dead-end life behind? Wouldn't you get as close as you could to this source of such profound hope? These three groups all converge on Jesus this morning. His family, the religious leadership, and the crowds. Each one makes his claim on Jesus. And the question is, where will Jesus stand? Where will he make his home? It's not with his family, calling him crazy in their efforts at keeping him safe. I know exactly what I'm doing, he says. I'm not out of my mind. And it's not with the scribes, accusing him of satanic possession in their efforts at keeping the status quo. I'm here to plunder Satan's house, he says, not to serve it. Jesus stands with the crowds, with the sinners and the sick and the hurting and the left behind, with those brave enough or desperate enough or crazy enough to imagine a new future of boundless grace and to take a step toward it. He stands with these people who see him for who he truly is. Here are my mother and my brothers, he says. Here is my family. That's where Jesus stands. And in the end, I think the story asks us the same question. Where will we stand? Where will you stand? Will you stand on the side of safety? avoiding the risk of becoming involved in the lives of others and in the struggle for change? Will you stand on the side of stability, passively accepting all that's wrong with the world and with society, because at least it's familiar? Or will you stand where Jesus does, beside that messy crowd of people hungry for something better, 
Hungry for a world where barriers are broken down, where no one's dignity is trampled, where justice is enacted, where sins are forgiven and mercy is lived out, where everyone belongs. Where will you stand? It's a big question, and it's one that we must answer again and again, in big ways and in small ones, in our families, in our workplaces, in our church, in how we vote, in how we spend our time, and our energy, and our money. There is challenge there, of course. It's not easy to stand where Jesus does. It is not always safe, and it's not always stable. It's not always clear where that path will lead. But there is grace there too, because we always have the opportunity to change. Friends, you have it again today. The invitation to take a step toward Jesus. He's waiting, and he's brought others with him. Lots of them, in fact. And here's the thing. In his presence, they are not just a crowd. In his presence, they are kin, sisters and brothers, family. Thanks be to God. Amen.